In the name of Jesus, amen. I think it was about 10 years ago, it was just a month or so after my family and I had moved into a new house, a place we were, we were renting a little bit west of town, and we got an invitation in the mailbox, an invitation came inviting us to a, a neighborhood party, and we thought that was pretty cool. We'd just been there a few weeks with a, a welcoming neighborhood. Um, even thought it was more cool when we uh, showed up at the house. It was kind of not technically part of our neighborhood, but kind of at the end of our neighborhood, a long driveway. Um, and it was just this massive uh, home. It's the sort of place that I, I kind of say, uh, you know, it's a, a big place when instead of a yard, they have grounds. So this place, this place had grounds. And not only that, but they had an indoor pool, uh, which the, the kids thought was cool. I think just my daughters at that time. Um, wonderful snacks, uh, catered, uh, like uh, serving people going around, uh, top shelf uh, beverages. So very cool to be invited to something like that. And the people were, were nice. They'd come up and talk to us and say, now, now uh, uh, who are you again? And, uh, and where do you live? Um, which we figured, you know, since we're new to town, we said, oh, we're, we're new. We just, uh, we just moved into the, uh, the Thomas's place. That's who we were renting it from. And it's, uh, it's so, so great to be here at this place at this party. Um, Well, as you might have figured out uh, by now, and we figured out uh, a week or so after this party, my family had not actually been invited to the party. Who had been invited were the Thomases, (laughs) who uh, had moved out a couple weeks earlier, but whoever put the the, uh, invitation in the box without particular names um, thought the Thomases, their friends, still live there. I'm glad we didn't know that at the time because I said it was a, it was a great party and we had an indoor pool and great food and drinks, um, but we, we had not been invited. And it turns out the, now who are you again, was actually code for, I don't think you've been invited to this party. <laughs> I don't think you've been invited to this party might be a good paraphrase of the words John spoke to Jesus when he showed up at the Jordan River to be baptized. I'm sure there were not uh, bacon-wrapped scallops and top-shelf beverages there given John's uh, usual diet, but he was surprised, as surprised as those people in my neighborhood, more surprised to see Jesus showing up here. He says as much. He says, uh, what are you doing, Jesus? What is this? I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In other words, uh, uh, you're in the wrong place. I don't think you've been invited to this party. As John had said, it's a, it's a sinner's party. We, we, we miss the, the, the irony and the, the strangeness of it all because a, a couple verses were, were left off of our gospel lesson. If we started a couple verses earlier, we might get it uh, better. Verse 11, it starts John preaching, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I. His sandals I'm not worthy to stoop or carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then without missing a beat, the next words, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to what? to spit out some fire, to blow some people away, winnowing fork, all that sort of stuff? No. Then John came to be baptized. So no wonder John's surprise when Jesus shows up fire-free, shoulder to shoulder, in that nasty water of the Jordan with all those sin confessors, hand in hand in the gutter, with a bunch of poor, miserable, bruised, 
reeds, and smoldering wicks. This can't be right, Jesus. I don't think you're at the right party. Catch the irony there, and we, we set it up. And it's purposeful. It's part of the whole plan of this story. It's purposeful to, to shock us, to reveal who this Jesus really is and what he's about. That's the whole season of Epiphany. You probably know that Epiphany means the, the showing forth or the, the manifestation or the uncovering. And that's what's going on here in these verses. In this whole season, last week we started with these magi, these mixed bags. What are they doing there? Not only are they soothsaying astrologers, but they're Gentiles for crying out loud. For the Jewish Messiah? It turns out that this Messiah from the Jews isn't only for the Jews. And then these words, too. What kind of king, what kind of savior will he be? Well, evidently, one with a knack for showing up at the wrong parties. Which is what he does all, does, does all along. It's the, it's the whole story, and you know this. In the wrong places with the wrong people. Matthew, actually, in his gospel, starts it off right from the beginning with this boring genealogy we had it a couple months ago, which isn't boring at all once you see the names in there. We heard about that. We talked about that. Instead of just the, 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 the super folks, the superheroes of the faith, inside the genealogy in Matthew, he mentions the unmentionables. He peppers his genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, with allusions to a family history, sick with adulteries and murders and worse. The kinds of people Jesus came from, and also the kind he came for. And then chapter after chapter, chock full of prodigal sons and stupid sheep and dense disciples, all gets going right there at the Jordan, where Jesus shows up at the wrong party, shoulder to shoulder, in the muck, in the dirt, with the sinners, and says to John, no, this is exactly the party I'm meant for. Now, we might be tempted to look at John and say, didn't he really miss the boat? And pushing Jesus away of all people. Who in the world does he think he is uh, telling Jesus what to do to, to stay away from there? But I wonder how often we might play the part of John the Baptist, maybe not literally pushing Jesus away or, or trying to, but doing as much by living as if it's not the sinners. That's what John calls the people at his baptism. Not real wholehearted sinners who belong, but rather maybe just people who suffer from occasional lapses of judgment or, or, or folks who maybe just need a little godly guidance here and there, a, a brush of moral makeup to cover over the bothersome but manageable pimples of impiety. Of course, we know that makeup doesn't exist, so we try to find it, and that. Never works. So try we try we do. You probably had the experience of uh, showing up at church uh, once in a while. Maybe it's every week, and wondering to yourself. I wonder if we're all putting on a show here, cleaned up, uh, perked up, dressed up, pretending like we all have it together. All masters of the pious in church lingo. Go on about how we're all blessed, putting on a show. When if we were granted just a moment of honesty about how we really feel, about how really broken we are, how fragile. There's those images in the Old Testament, Isaiah's, uh, the image of, a, of a, a bruised reed and a smoldering wick 
to describe the people for whom the, the Messiah comes. The, the bruised reed, they used them either as writing instruments or even as, as flutes. And you can imagine a, a reed like that, if it gets a little crack or just a little bit smushed, there's really no salvaging it. Uh, well, for some reason, what comes to mind uh, to me, I have at least five partly broken umbrellas in my, in my little drawer or a little cabinet in my garage. You know, when one of the eight or ten things that go around gets broken a little bit, and you try to straighten it out maybe and stick it in there, maybe put some tape on there, but once it's bruised, once it's half broken, it's, it's no good anymore. But these smoldering wicks, I can imagine our, our altar guild, there's one of the wicks that would kind of light, but kind of not light because it was damaged. It got smushed down by an acolyte pushing it down too hard or something like that. They'd say it's kind of done for. It's not really of good use to anybody else. That's kind of the images here. These fragile, broken things ready for the, for the trash heap, which is how many of us feel and are often, not because of occasional lapses of judgment, that's how you are and the, the people you live with are, the people you love slash can hardly stand sometimes are. It's amazing how many people fill both, both, both categories, love but can hardly stand sometimes. What if we are granted a bit of honesty to actually see and speak ourselves as we truly are? If some sort of cosmic wonder woman showed up with her lasso of truth, truth and I wished it around the, the whole church. Imagine the, the truths and the depths of despairs and guilts and shames that would spill out, which would dirty the metaphorical waters. I remember seeing a painting uh, uh, some time ago. It's a painting of Jesus' baptism. It was a popular motif in, uh, in Christian art. Early Christian still is. I can't find the painting again, so it's, 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 it might be true that I dreamt this painting. Uh, not even the, uh, Google could find it for me, but it's a picture of Jesus in the waters, and the waters are disgusting. Uh, the, the people have kind of come in, they're being baptized. Um, John's there with Jesus, and it's just gross. It looks like a sewer, uh, except for the outer ring of the, like the shores. The water is crystal clear. And somehow the artist has depicted it um, to give the impression that all the dirt and the muck from the outside is being drawn closer to Jesus. That Jesus' presence in there is like some kind of giant vacuum cleansing that water, as I did with my, my, my magic trick, a little bleached water and iodine, to cleanse it all up. There's actually an early manuscript, uh, a 4th century uh, manuscript. Sometimes when the scribes were, were copying these things, they had stories they remembered from somewhere, and they'd add little lines. And there's actually one that adds to our gospel lesson. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, a magnificent light glowed through the water. That somehow Jesus' presence there overpowered all the dirt and the muck and brought it onto himself. So John says to Jesus, you don't belong here. But Jesus says, no, this is exactly where I belong, in these waters, because I belong with these sinners. If you don't believe me, believe my Father who says, this is my beloved Son. This is the ones I stand with, and when I stand with them, I gather up all those dirts and shames and despairs. I heal the bruised weeds, I sal- or reeds, I salvage the, the smoldering wicks. I gather them all to myself. Stand with them. It's a beautiful picture. If you ever find it, you know, let me know where it is so I can reference it the next time I use this example. But if you don't like uh, uh, old Christian art or 4th century Latin manuscripts, uh, another image. I'll close with this one. It's good. I'm not a Star Trek fan or huge, but I've, I've seen the movies. And I remember one particular scene um, from Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. 
Got to set it up a little bit. I had to look up on Google to see exactly the plot of the other movies, to why it makes sense. But I think it was in the, the second movie, Star Trek II, um, somehow Spock gets killed. Um, and in Star Trek III, the people, uh, uh, Admiral Kirk at this time and the rest of the crew, they got to go rescue their friend from this, this weird planet where Spock's body had been deposited. And to do so, they have disabled one starship. They've hijacked the Enterprise, broken all sorts of um, uh, uh, Starfleet rules to go to get Spock. This isn't part of the story, but somehow Spock is now alive when they get there. Weird planet. But for all their misdeeds, for all their misdeeds, Kirk, McCoy, the whole gang are uh, exiled to the planet Vulcan. That's Star Trek III. The Voyage Home, four. With the help of a time machine and a humpback whale, it's a weird movie, they make their way back to Earth. Save the Earth in the process. And it's, this is the point, final scene. I think it's about the final scene. It's the court-martial scene. Uh, Admiral Kirk and the crew, they've messed up big time. Uh, they are, are guilty as could be. Of course, Spock isn't because he didn't do anything. He's not there. They march out the accused. And they stand there before the president who is about to deliver the verdict. And as the president's just about to deliver the verdict, um, there's some rustling in the crowd. And it is none other than Spock, who has done nothing wrong, who comes out and he stands there in the line of the guilty, at which point the president says, um, um, but Mr. Spock, you do not stand accused. Spock responds in his emotionless Vulcanese. He said, Mr. President, but I stand with my shipmates. If you're a Trek fan, that's when you get chills. (laughs) If you tear up and say, another movie. (laughs) But if you're not a Trek fan, or if you are both, and you're a fan of Jesus, you might see in that picture, in that final scene, a picture of your Jesus standing with you. John saying to Jesus, but Messiah, you do not stand accused. And Jesus saying, but I stand with my shipmates. But I stand with my brothers and my sisters. But I stand with the smoldering wicks and the bruised reeds and the poor and the miserable. Jesus saying, I stand with all of those who way many, too many times have showed up at the wrong parties, with all the folks who have found themselves in the wrong places. Jesus saying to you then in those waters, Jesus saying to you right now, wherever you are, wherever you have been, I stand with you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.